We're in chapter 16 of Church Discipline, uh, the chapter that maybe we were tempted to just go ahead and skip to when we first got the book in our hands. I know I kind of did. Um, but there's so much m- more to appreciate, and I think the chapter is actually significantly easier if we read the first 15 uh, before getting here. This is simply some Q&A on discipline. And while he asks some questions that he just didn't quite hit on in the previous chapters, he does kind of ask some questions he he had said before, just as as a way to kind of reiterate. Um, Before we jump into that, I just want to, you know, let's talk about what this is all about. What's the what's the point of church discipline? What what's what's the objective? Restoration. Restoration. Holiness. Holiness. What does God want for us? He He wants us to experience this unity, this fellowship, this this um, this oneness in Christ. In uh, Philippians two, um, and I didn't include it in the email, um, but I think it's applicable here. Philippians two, and we're familiar with this. The first four verses of that. <clears throat> He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And for the sake of time, I leave out the best part of that whole passage. Here's an example then of how Christ did that for all of us. But the objective, what Paul wants for the Philippians, what Jesus wants for for all of those who belong to his church, is a completion of joy that we are of the same mind. We have the same love, and we are in full accord, and of one mind, and we know that's not easily come by. It doesn't happen naturally. We have to work at it. We have to strive at it. But it's possible. And, and we, should, um, we should strive for that. And then uh, we read in, in Hebrews, you remember when it talks about God's discipline for us. He doesn't do that because he's a malicious, you know, uh, angry God, he, he disciplines us as a father disciplines a child, and we recognize a good father does that because of their love for the child. And God is doing that at times, what, what seems painful in the moment, he does it because of his love for us. And so understanding that when, when the church, uh, when we as a collective are called to do this uh, for each other, rather than thinking of doing it to each other, but we're doing it for each other. Discipline is, is done for the good of that individual. It's done for the good of the church. And uh, I, th- I think this, uh, at least for me, this study has, has helped uh, maybe shift my perspective of how, how good discipline can be if done in the way that God intends. We all know it can be very destructive if we don't do it the way God intends. But, but our objective is we're, we're trying to do good for this brother or this sister. 
Um, that opening quote at the beginning of this chapter, to abandon discipline because it has sometimes been ill-administered is as unwarranted as it would be to abandon worship on the ground that it has sometimes been ill-conducted. The relaxation of discipline has often more absurd results than ever attended its excesses. Um, he said to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to say, well, it's been done badly, so chuck the whole thing. Um, he makes this analogy. It's, it's to abandon worship just because sometimes worship is done in a way that it shouldn't. I would say it's like abandoning parenting, saying ah, parenting doesn't work because I look over at those parents over there or I've looked at myself and it didn't work. So chuck the whole thing. Let the kids do whatever they want. Uh, well, no, we, we know that that's foolish. The relaxation of discipline has often more absurd results than ever attended its excesses. And I'd say this is true for, for anything in regards to Christianity. There is danger in, in swinging too far on either pendulum, right? To relax and say, no discipline is ever necessary. I never want to say anything potentially offensive to my brother or sister is destructive and harmful, but so is nitpicking and pounding down on every minor infraction. So, I wrote some, some verses. I believe that we have studied all of these uh, in the previous chapters just to kind of refresh us. Um, these are passages from Christ himself, from many of the inspired apostles. Um, some of them are general principles, like uh, when, when Jesus gives the instruction in Matthew 18. Some of them, uh, Paul is discussing very specific events, very specific situations, like in, in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, what other kind of passages would you throw up here to help us, remind us of these godly principles as we ask some of these, uh, as we entertain some of these, these scenarios? Well, you mentioned Hebrews 12. Yes. And I think, you know, it's, Let's write that it's foundational yeah. uh, in so many ways. I'm, I'm a big fan of reading the context. Just read the whole chapter. <laughs> read the whole chapter. God's discipline. We need to pattern ourselves after God. So how does he discipline us? Well, we know he's patient. He's long-suffering. He's kind. He's merciful. But he's also... Uh, when necessary, stern when it comes to the truth. He's, he's not going to abide us uh, wandering into our own devices. He's going to do what he can to bring us back. What else? Yeah. I would say 1 Corinthians 13, the uh, chapter on love. Yes. Because this, this whole idea of, yes, we discipline, but it's all discipline in love. And um, right. 1 Corinthians 13 explains what love is. That's correct. And why is, is love important? And I can't think of the passage, but... Uh, oh, there it is. Uh, Ephesians 4.15. <coughs> we are to speak the truth in love. And we, we talked about that extensively, right? Don't just do the one. I'm going to speak the truth, and I'm going to say it however I think I should. Don't just speak love, the the you know, modern-day culture's definition of that word. No. Speak it in 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Yeah. What else? Galatians 1, 6 to 10. Okay. Galatians you got 1. Galatians 6. Oh, I got Galatians 6. Oh, I did. Yeah. Galatians I'm sorry. Galatians 1. 1. My brain. 6 through 10. 
Right, so that's when Paul says, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel. You know, look. And, and so what's, what's the requirement on our part? What's then expected of us? We, we need to know what Jesus' true gospel is, right? That's going to take discernment. It's going to take study. We won't be able to tell the counterfeits unless we know the genuine thing. So I think it's easy, or there's the temptation perhaps, as we start asking, well, what about such and such a scenario that we start throwing out either our own experiences, we start throwing out our own opinions, but if we, we, if we aren't taking the proper time to ground them in the principles that we know, um, we could end up starting to do what seems reasonable and logical in our own minds, even though it may uh, contradict what, what God's principles are. Um, any other passages before? Basically, he gives some, some scenarios or some questions. Well, what about this situation? What about and I, I'm willing, I, I think we should go through some of these, but I also would like to kind of open it up, as dangerous as that is. <laughs> and I would ask if you bring up a scenario... Use discretion and discernment. If, if, if it's not necessary to specifically call out a particular church or an, a particular individual, um, let's be discerning with that. If you can get helpful, biblical sound advice uh, from us uh, without necessarily name-calling, uh, I would encourage that. Okay. Were there, e- were there any either questions in the chapter or questions that you had that you'd like us to kind of talk together and study through? Or have Mike and I done such a thorough job that this is going to be the shortest class ever? Nobody wants to start. Well, keep in mind, we have two class periods. I know, we do. <laughs> so at, like, ask, and I, I hope we've emphasized that enough in this class. Do not have fear in asking questions. Right? Don't 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 be afraid or embarrassed of oh, I expect everyone in this class probably knows this. Maybe not. Maybe they're asking the same question you are. There she is. All right. I haven't been in this class, so you might already talk about this. Um, but what should church discipline look like without elders? Ah, we did address a bit of that. What did we talk about? It's impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, we Mike. talked about the fact that church discipline is not something for the elders to do. It's not the elders' job to do that. It's the, it's the duty of all Christians to be disciplining one another. Now, the elders uh, may have some responsibility in leading some of that, um, but it's not, it, oh, we can't, we don't have elders, therefore we can't discipline Appropriately, right. I, I am my brother's keeper. I am uh, called to to encourage him and to admonish him and to hold, hold him accountable. Yeah. So the admonition Jesus gave in, I'd say admonition, the command Jesus gave in, in Matthew 18, if, if a brother sins, I, I have an obligation to go to them. I don't need the elder's permission for that. Um, but there's a way to go about it in love. There's a way to go about it in, in a way that, pursues the goal, I'm trying to restore them. 
Um, that's, that's every individual's responsibility. Now, there are great benefits of being in a, in a church that has an eldership that can help with that. Um, s- sin is messy. Sin, sin makes things, tries to make things more complicated than they really are. And, and there is great benefit in having an eldership that can help uh, weed through some of that. Right? I was thinking also, um, whether you have elders or not, sometimes just by um, following Matthew 18, going to a brother or another brother, if you don't see any repentance on their part, um, can the, the elders may not even know about that because the repentance has taken place. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been in that situation too and and I guess that's kind of how I look at it it's like in a business you start I'm not comparing the church to a business I hate that but <laughs> if we start at the little things sure you know the big things take care of themselves oftentimes it's not yeah. always but it's nice when when that can happen so the elders aren't necessarily need to know they probably would know but they sure. don't necessarily need to be involved or even know sometimes about things until yeah. after the fact just because things have been taken care of privately and and, and they things have turned out well. I think a lot of times with discipline the hardest part isn't necessarily going to the brother. It's having the right attitude going to the brother because usually if somebody says something to me um, I might not react but um, a lot of times the hair comes up on your back like who do you think you are? Type sure. Of thing, right? So um but the attitude in which somebody would come to me is, is, is I think, or the attitude that I would go to somebody, is I think the hardest part about church discipline yeah. and what we mostly need to work on. When you were saying earlier, it's good for the church, it's good for, you know, um, we're trying to um, be met with our brethren. It's also good for us if we have to be the one going to somebody because it really helps us to temper our spirits, to depend on God, to say the right things and study and make sure that our attitude is right when we go to them. Absolutely. And and we've made note of that numerous times. There, There is almost as much or more instruction to the individual going to the person than there is to the person who's in sin. Right? The heart and the attitude and the actions that we take when going to that person are just as important, if not more so. Um, because surely we have all seen we can do more damage to that sinful brother or sister if we come to them in a way that is not Christ-like uh, than ever we, we would um, just by leaving them. Yeah. Matt. So back to that question, um, I think that without <clears throat> elders, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult for the church as a collective to discipline the way God wants it done. Um, because usually... There's going to be uh, factions involved um, without a, a a collective group of leaders that are going to to you know if need be make the ultimate decision. I think that's why Titus was instructed to go and appoint elders in every church because it is so important to have that have that pastoral relationship between you know the the local shepherd and the, and, and the flock. Um, and so I've been a gr- part of a group, um, you know, when I was growing up that didn't have elders, and mm-hmm. discipline was done. It was done through, you know, men's meetings. But even though I was young, you could always tell there was always an an element of disagreement with some. That mm-hmm. they and 
you may still have that with elders, but at least you don't have the argument then as to do we or don't we. And with elders, if they're making the ultimate decision for the protection of the flock, then um, you know, then that decision is, is being made. So yeah. it can be done, but I think it's very difficult to be done in a godly way and in a unified way without elders. Yeah, oh, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, there, there's a lot of heartache that we save ourselves from if we simply do things in the way that God wants us to do them. Not to say that a church that has no elders is sinning. If, if they're in a, in a group and there's no one qualified to be an elder, well, that's not, that's not a sinful situation. But we can all agree it would be better if they did have an eldership. Um, and, and so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, grief could be saved um, okay. in that. Yes? Another thing along those lines, I have found in my experiences, having spent most of my Christian life in congregations without elders, it's almost impossible. Because as we noted in earlier classes, the people that are causing division or bringing in false doctrine, they're very uh, driven. They think highly of themselves. They're very confident in themselves. They may be great wordsmiths where they can turn an argument around to make it sound like you were the one that was sinning when you approached them about mm. sinning. I, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to me how convoluted some people's mind process is when you approach them and you say, you know, brother, you know, this is not right. You, you need to cease and desist. And they're like, you know what, nobody cares what you think, Joe, but go sit down. Yeah, and, I've... And if you don't have, strong, a, you don't have strong men to be right. able to, uh, you know, do battle, you know, tank to tank, you know, to get, you know, on the same level, it's, it's very hard to combat these strong... Yeah, I, I have a, a similar upbringing. Um, I don't think I attended a congregation with an eldership until my late teens. Like I never experienced what that was like. Um, I've seen I've seen churches without elders do it right, and I've I've seen some churches do it wrong. I've seen some churches do it, and they did it, but it it could have been done better. But I mean that's that's our Christian walk, isn't it? Usually, we can look back and go, wow, if I had the opportunity to do that again, um, here are the things I would do differently. Um, yeah, I think we can wholeheartedly agree there's a, there's a blessing um, in having an eldership. What other questions? What other questions? not so much a question at this point, but uh, this was a passage I had written in a marginal note in my Bible that I don't think we've looked at yet. In Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, now again, there's there's discernment uh, in, in application here. And we, this is clearly wisdom uh, literature, but Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And so, being willing to discipline in a timely fashion, Hmm. and sometimes that may that may lean more toward trying to be 
you know, quick about it rather than taking too much time. There, there are, there are ill effects by by waiting. Yes. There's there's positives in being patient and and so forth, but there's the other side of that as well. Right. And again, you're trying to find the balance, right? Yeah. Because you don't you don't want to be so quick. You're ready to drop that hammer, and maybe you haven't taken the time to fully understand the situation. But you also, uh, you know, and I, I can try to understand from from your perspective. If if you know something is happening that is potentially damaging to the flock, you don't want that to go on any longer than is absolutely necessary. You want to, you know, stem that that flood, um, and trying to find the balance. And, and using wisdom, um, <clears throat> we see God do it as well. <clears throat> we were studying uh, Exodus um, and, and really the conquest of Canaan. So, uh, you know, Joshua judges. God sent the Israelites into that land to punish those people, not just to clear a way so Israel could be there, but he was punishing those people because he had said 400 years prior... They're not ready for punishment. Their iniquity isn't quite full. And so he gave them 400 years to repent. You know, God, God's patience is, is hard to understand. Um, how much time do we give? How, how much patience do we show? Um, again, there, there's no one verse that says, you've got seven days from this point to this point, and then give them three days, and then... But you've got these passages where, depending on the circumstance, Paul, the inspired writers, you know, uh, talk about doing this quickly. When you are assembled, deliver this man. Like, there's no more waiting now at this point. Um, so, using discernment, using godly judgment, um, and trying to balance what's what's in the best interest of this individual. And what's in the best interest of the rest of the flock? If leaving that individual undisciplined will per- perpetuate and damage the existing flock, uh, there does need to be... Um, I think that's a great passage. Um, dealing with it speedily. Yeah, David. Yeah, I think finding that balance becomes a whole lot harder in a congregation that does not have elders. I, I, could, I could agree with that, yeah. There are those that want to do this very quickly, yeah. you know, get this over with, and there are others, oh, we must be extremely patient, and there are, most of the bad decisions are the ones that are made quickly. And, and, and I, know, yeah. I know people that, that will say that, yeah. and, and sincerely believe that, and, and, and they're good people. Uh, and so finding that balance without elders, I think, is really tough. Yeah, and it re- I, I think there's, I think there is a balance. Absolutely. Uh, like most things, the, you know, the ideal somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Between the two extremes, but where that is. Yeah, I, is I tough. think, I think it requires a great deal of introspection. What's the motive behind me wanting to act really quickly? Do I just want to get this brother or sister out of here? They're causing so much trouble. To get them out of here. Is that really the kind of heart that I should have towards that individual? Do I want to delay too long because my motive isn't their holiness? My motive is, I don't want to break this relationship. I love this too much. This is, I just want to leave this as is because I don't want to stir, stir the, the pot. 
you know, uh, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I'm trying to get the analogies all, you know, <laughs> stir the feathers and ruffle the pot. <laughs> but we delay and we delay and we delay. And is my motive really that I'm trying to do what's in their best interest? At the end of their life, is it in their best interest that they have a relationship with me? Or is it in their best interest that they have a relationship with Christ? And I need to be willing, I need to be willing at times to give up my relationship with them if that has the potential of restoring their relationship with Christ. I know a congregation right now that is facing that. I mean, there's a, a brother that is sinning, clearly, and needs to be disciplined. But they don't have elders. And the person talking to me specifically said, this is a lot harder. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I'm still struggling with the same situation that I was struggling with at the beginning of the class. Mm-hmm. It, when someone, I, I just don't see it addressed specifically in Scripture. Sure. And having still having trouble applying this. When someone of their own volition says, you know, it's not causing trouble, is not being factious, is not sinning in any um, demonstrable way, but just says, except that they say, I no longer believe. I'm no longer, I'm leaving of, you know, of my own accord. You know, I no longer want to be associated with this group spiritually. Okay. That person still have, wants to have relationships with at least some of the members within the body. And even Matthew 18 to me doesn't seem to apply exactly to that situation because whether you're, you know, whether you fall on the side of, of sinning as opposed to sinning against me, let's say we even go with that. It still, to me, those verses imply that there's been some activity because if after you have a conversation with the brother or sister, you don't come to a resolution. You bring other people in to establish facts. Mm-hmm. So to me, that scenario still kind of speaks to, um, you know, something, some activity has occurred. Okay. Can I ask a clarifying yeah, question? Belief. Sure. Um, so, help me understand this. I'm certainly not going to be like, so here's the answer. I would very much like to hear. Um, I, I have some passages in mind, but help me understand. So, this person isn't someone who's like, they've become an alcoholic, they've divorced their spouse, they've robbed several banks. There, there, there aren't these sins that are very obvious. They have simply, at one time they professed Christ, and now they're saying, I don't believe that anymore. Is that what you're saying? Okay. <clears throat> and I'm withdrawing my membership. Oh, and and so they've left the group. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I guess I would ask the group, what does the scriptures teach as far as those who once professed Christ and do no longer? Because that's, in my understanding, that's that's basically what's occurred. Um, okay. I'm... I was just looking for the verse that Deborah was asking me about another verse. Uh, I was thinking about where Jesus is teaching, I am the vine, ye are the branches. 
no one can do anything unless they're connected to the to the vine. If if you're not connected to the vine, Jesus says you'll you'll be cut off or you'll fall off and you'll be gathered and, and burned. John fifteen comes to mind. Okay, John fifteen. I think of Galatians six, you know, you've got someone who who uh, needs to be restored. Uh, they've from the description and shared, they've they've fallen from their relationship with Christ and they need that that, that net needs mended. Um, it may not be an overt uh, sin against someone, uh, but as we said, the goal of, of discipline is restoration. Mm-hmm. Now the question becomes, how do I go about that, and how does that how does that look in my with my personal relationship with that individual? Yes. Yeah, that is the question. That's the I'm question. Questioning whether this person has fallen away or yeah. whether this person has been cut off from Christ. I'm questioning what, how do we interact with that person? Um, is it you know Paul specifically says I don't want you to separate from people who are in the world. I want you to separate from you know brothers and sisters who are causing trouble within your body. So is this person now just someone who's within the world? Obviously, we want, like we talked about, what is best for that person. Is what's best for that person to continue an interactive relationship with him or her, continually, obviously, make it clear to that person, we're going to talk about Jesus. But we're also going to, you know, hang out in order to talk about Jesus. We're going to... And we don't have to talk about Jesus every time we're together, but yes, I believe you have fallen away from Christ, and my goal the rest of your life is to bring you back to Christ. But you know, within the context of that, we are going to be together on multiple occasions, and I'm going to bring up Jesus as much as I can, but we don't have to talk about Jesus every time we're together. Is that what's best for that person? And I know you're not asking me, because <laughs> I don't care what I say. I'm asking that this what, is what... What passages can we go to? This is what the... What passages can we go to, to, I, I would say first, because you had said they're not really sinning, they've just, they no longer believe. No, can we, I'm sorry, I, was, okay. I didn't mean that they weren't sinning. I'm okay. saying that, I was trying to say that there wasn't, a, to me, Matthew 18 addresses an action that has happened okay. that may that not everybody knows about and that needs to be dealt with in an in a first and private and then in an increasingly public situation. I'm sorry that No, okay. No, I'm I'm glad for the clarification. And so this is a public that has been made public by this person. So that's why I'm saying that I didn't I don't think Matthew 18 applies to that kind of scenario specifically. Okay. Um, that this is somebody who has publicly said, I'm leaving this body. Okay. What's but some of those people might still have. How, how does everybody deal with that kind of situation? Sure. Or maybe it's even someone in another church, which I know that's another 
<laughs> we'll be, yeah, we can get we can get to that one. Yeah, that's another conversation. Yeah, John. Another wrinkle. The intro to your text written on the board, Matthew eighteen. I mean, what the verses that just come before that? Are, mm-hmm. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for one that's straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say he rejoices over it more than the, over the ninety-nine who have not gone astray. And to me, the, the picture and paints is you've got a sheep who's wandered away. Wow, how, how do I bring them back? <laughs> right. That's the, that's, the, that's the lead-in to what we see then in <clears throat> verses 15 through 17. Right. Yeah, Tom. Well, how, how would you go about if you were married... And your spouse left you, but they want to live in the same house. Like that's a different question. Can we get no. to that one later? <laughs> but I'm not I'm trying say, to put you off. I'm saying that that's actually exactly what we're kind of talking about here. Of you're talking about this person no longer wants to be in this relationship with you. They don't, you know. That how can you still abide in the same house? Yes, I would say it's different though. No, if I'm someone decides saying, to walk I'm, away with a relationship, no, I think you're not talking about I, that a Christian who I'm saying um, metaphysically or like 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 a relationship, <laughs> okay. like a like we're married in Christ or something like that. You know, I'm just I'm saying in a how can how can you continue to dwell in the and just act like no, nothing's changed, nothing's nothing's wrong. You know, you you just decided to amicably leave. That uh, how do you continue to just have this relationship with this person? And oh well, we just still do the same things we've been doing. We just don't talk about it anymore because you don't believe this anymore. But it's interesting though that what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter six how how do you restore such a one who once tasted the goodness of God, mm-hmm. how do you restore that? How do we restore that? I don't seem to answer it there. It doesn't mean it can't be restored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I fully understand you. Um, well, and I, I think that that's I think <coughs> Ann brings up a really good really good question because yeah. he kind of addresses it in general at the beginning of this chapter saying that there are too many scenarios to be able to answer every single one. Yes. And I think to to and I think especially when we get to this subject and maybe some other ones, we want to say, no matter what you come up with, I can give you a book chapter verse that's going to tell you exactly how to handle that. And I don't believe that's the case as far as thou shalt do, right? I think we're ta- a lot of this we're talking about relationships, we're talking about principles and we're talking about how God wants us to to live with each other in Christ, and so we have to take. We I don't know that we can go to this chapter in this book and say, "And here's your answer." I think we look at this whole thing as a whole, and how does God want us to relate, and how does God want us to deal with this person, and what kind of a relationship can we have? You know, yes. we talked about the idea that that how can we restore someone if there isn't some sort of a relationship? If I just cut them off and say, if even if I see them in a grocery store, I'm going to turn around and walk the other way. Is that even showing love to this person that I need to show love to? And mm-hmm. so, you know, 
am I going to be able to give Anne the, the answer and say, here's what the Bible specifically says about this specific situation? No. Absolutely not. Yeah. And that's, that's not my attempt here at all, because if I had a book chapter verse, we would have written it up here already, and then we would have moved on to the next question. All we can do, you're right, all we can do is go, well, this, this passage talks about this principle. This passage talks about this principle. How do I then apply that principle? Right? The, the Bible does the same thing with modesty. Right? The Bible says we need to live and act and dress modestly. But the Bible doesn't give us the length of the shorts. It doesn't give us the size of the neck. It allows us to use our best judgment to follow the principle. Right? So I wish I could say, yeah, such and such a book says when this situation happens. All we can do, though, and what I was trying to do with some of these verses was, if we take the time to read the passages and try to better understand what position are they in? What position are they in? And is it a position that I want to let them stay indefinitely? And I'm not accusing you of that. I, I have family members who are willing to do such a thing. And it's, it's a shame. Because I've got individuals, clearly they have abandoned their faith. They want nothing more to do with God. And there are people okay to just let that lie. They, they are in danger, physical, spiritual danger of God's judgment. And I, I can't just let that lie. But how do we do it? Does it mean that every time I see him, I punch him in the face with truth? Does it mean that I never even look him in the eye and I never have anything to do with him ever again? Well, clearly the principles don't allow for either one of those things. Um, so again, it, it, it requires a great deal of introspection. Am I primarily seeking their spiritual good first? at the expense of my own relationship with them. Is that really my, my principle? And we've got, to, we've got to evaluate that on a regular basis. Is my primary objective to keep the church pure and holy as God requires his bride to be? Is my primary objective to restore them to Christ or is it to restore them to me? Because if we, do, if we do the relationship to me as of principal importance, I've seen this, it's been happening for a decade in my family. Do you know what happens? Nothing happens. Because they have what they want. They have no motivation to change. They don't, they don't want God because they, they, they get what they want without him. So why change? Well, isn't the question, though, of... Would you would you treat them as if they never believed? Is or that would you treat them differently? I mean, you work with people that don't believe, right? And your interaction with them. But if one of them did believe and then stops believing, do you just go, "Oh, well, we'll just treat it like like"? Can you go back to that? I mean, that, yeah. that's what I'm getting at. That's here. a great what question. And what what is scripture? It's not just <laughs> what is scripture say? How can you just go back to that of like? Well, we'll just act like this, right. this believing period never occurred. Yeah, I don't that believe we can the just scriptures continue to have that. that same relationship as it. That's all I'm right. saying there with the marriage thing of like, how can you, you continue can. to live in the same house as if? Well, let's just go back to like it was before we got married, and that you know we were just you know we just did our thing, and, and, and but we're just still going to live here in the same house. Or you know we're 
Like it just can't go back to that anymore. Right. That no matter what you do there, you, there's still some form of discipline that you're doing there. Uh, it may look differently, but it's yeah. still like you still have to evaluate your relationship and your fellowship with this person and, and what you say about what you say to them. Uh, that Matthew 18 still applies with those things. It doesn't just like drop off the map because they now don't consider themselves a believer, but it's like it's still the same type of thing. I mean, I think you have to have a discussion with that person and say, hey, if you want to discuss this or otherwise, our relationship is going to change. I mean, as long as you're willing to, you know, this is my position, this is your position, we're going to have to have, if you continue to do this, I can't, you know, do this. We get, sure. Our relationship's going to change. Yeah. It can't be the way it was. Right. And as with any any of these situations, um, and this is me learning from the School of Hard Knocks, it's a lot easier and more appropriate to say, God requires me to do thus and so. It's not about, this is my position and this is your position. This, this is what the this is what the scriptures teach about your choices. This this is what the scriptures say will be the inevitable result of your choices. I don't want that for you. I'm tr- I'm trying to help you avoid that, but this is what God says I have to do when you make choices like this. And and then it alleviates you and and it keeps them from well, you're just unloving. Well, it, it has nothing to do with how I feel about this. Uh, I've got to simply say that this is how God views sin. Um, he, he views it really very seriously. I mean, uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 and verse 26 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, so we, we know the truth and we've received it. We've accepted it. But if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There, there's nothing else God can offer us. We've taken it and went, nope, I don't want that. What is left? What does remain? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody. And so, in my interactions with this individual, I wish I could give you very specific, but really just keeping that in mind. Whatever I'm doing with this individual, am I keeping in mind that if they stay in that state, they will be spiritually lost? Does that mean that literally every word out of my mouth has to be scripture and I can't talk about it? No, no. But I think everything that I do with them should be motivated, motivated by the thing. I, I want to help you. I want to save you. Uh, and I can't, I can't save you. I want to help you come, come back to Jesus. Come back to the blessings of that. Um, I don't know if that's specific enough for you. I've got all kinds of hands here. Um, maybe on the other side of the coin, or maybe this will muddy the water some, but... Um, if that person is left with no godly um, representation or godly example in their lives, 
and they just go deeper out into the world with no one in their life that is having some kind of influence over them or some kind of example, how do they hope? It's a good question. I don't want to invalidate that question. But I need to trust God that His truth will find those who want it. And sometimes it may not come from me. Sometimes it may not come from me. But I need to have faith enough in the power of God and in His Holy Spirit. If, if someone is seeking truth, God, God's going to make a way. We've, we see that happen in Acts all over, right? God makes sure it, it finds them. So but I can't, I can't use a question like that and say, well, these passages say, under cer- certain circumstances, I'm to have nothing to do with them. But logically, I think I still need to have quite a bit to do with him because I'm the one who needs to give them truth. We can't do that. We can't do that. I need to trust God that the truth will find them, even if perhaps it doesn't come from me. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, I was going to kind of say that, that all of the Christians who are given all of the instructions to withdraw from brethren under all of these different circumstances, all of them could use that same argument and say, but Paul, if we do that, then Who's going to teach him? this person won't have any godly influence. Right. Um, yeah, this is going to bleed into next class. I hope that's all right. I'm not going to be here, but... I, I hope, I've got all the answers. I know you do, and that's why I've been basically biding my time until Wednesday. I, um, I want to communicate, and I, I hope I have in this class, I don't have all the answers. I've experienced and am experiencing some of these very same situations, and I haven't done it flawlessly, and I wouldn't necessarily say, obviously, what I've done, everyone needs to follow exactly that pattern. Um, but I have seen against worldly logic pushing someone away for a time actually bringing them back and the world would say that's judgmental and unloving and how could it possibly be effective but I've seen it work and God says it can work and I've, I've got to trust I've, I've got to trust that, that it works. I'm certainly not standing up here saying, this is easy. Why don't you all get this? Come on. This is... It's, it's devastating. It's devastating. I'm going to go to Christmas tomorrow, and a third of my family isn't going to be there. <coughs> because they want to come as long as we don't talk about Jesus. And I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. So we started the class saying what was the purpose of discipline, right? And we said it was holiness, so that God's church can be holy, and restoration. And I just keep thinking about this and what Anne was saying, because it seems like the person already with their actions, they took care of that first part by leaving, by making this profession and not being a part of this group anymore. They have allowed that group to maintain its holiness as far as the local church. Sure. So now it becomes the part of restoration. And so, you know, okay, holiness, restoration. This has been taken care of. And I think that works with any form of discipline 
where this idea of withdrawal comes from, right? If they're withdrawn from, we do that for the holiness aspect of it. Yes, some restoration as well. And then we we have this restoration. Restoration may be total avoidance, but restoration, I mean, we, we have plenty of, of examples where we are to admonish, we are to restore, and we talked about that, where there, there can be actions involved in that as well, not always just total avoidance. Mm-hmm. And so... There again, it kind of goes into this whole idea of looking at the principles and understanding um, what can I do within the realm of what I believe God allows me to do without letting this person feel like they are being condoned in their actions right. by me right. in an effort to restore. Right. And I think that's one of the hardest things to, to try to come to grips with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think question number five in the chapter deals a lot with that. We'll probably um, get to that on the Sunday you're back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then fine. We'll do it on uh, But question number five, it, it does ask, like, what if, what if they just go ahead and withdraw? Right. Is there anything else I can do? Right. And I, I think it gives yeah. s- some pretty scriptural uh, clarity to that. Yeah. I hope this class was helpful. I hope it was encouraging. Um, we're, we're striving to be like Christ. And there's blessings in that. And we're trying to bring people back to Christ when they reject those blessings. And, and that should be an encouraging and exhorting thing for us to do. So, um, Mike will help us on Wednesday.